Hello and welcome to the Odie Movement Podcast. I am Nick Castros, and in this episode I'm joined by Stephen Slate, co-author of the book The Freedom Model for Addiction, to discuss his story and how a different approach helped him overcome heroin addiction. As you'll hear, Stephen and I disagree on some pretty significant topics, namely treatment and whether or not addiction is a disease or a choice. Despite our differing views over some of the fundamental issues, we're able to put differences aside and find a lot of common ground on the topic. Stephen's story is quite remarkable. He attended the St. Jude Retreat, now called the Freedom Model Retreat, where the message was you're in control and you're choosing your addiction. The program stressed the idea that he didn't have a disease. In Stephen's words, the St. Jude approach was, why don't you see if you can be happier without the drugs? And if it works out, great. If it doesn't work, that's fine. You can always go back to them. However, treatment robs people of the chance to make this discovery. We touch base on the relationship between substance abuse and mental illness, the role of adverse childhood experiences, and the difference between pleasure and happiness, among other things. A couple of announcements before we begin. We will be wrapping up what's effectively the first season of the OD Movement Podcast next week. We have one more episode coming out before we shift focus from bringing guests onto our podcast to guesting on other shows. So, while I'll be stepping away from producing my own new content for the next few months, I'll still be actively sharing the content I'm featured on. More importantly, I want to tell you about a nonprofit I'm now involved with called Hope Not Handcuffs. Hope Not Handcuffs is an initiative aimed at bringing law enforcement and community organizations together in an effort to find viable treatment options for individuals seeking help to reduce dependency with heroin, prescription drugs, and alcohol. Here's how it works. A person struggling with any drug addiction can come to any participating police agency or they can go online and ask for help. They will be greeted with support, compassion, and respect. If accepted into the program, the individual will be guided through a brief intake process to ensure proper treatment placement. If a person is uninsured or has Medicaid, we will work directly with the local Office of Substance Abuse Services for placement. If a person has private insurance, we will provide them with treatment options covered by their plan. Regardless, the team will work to get them into treatment as soon as possible. If you or anybody you know might be able to benefit from this program, please check out their website at familiesagainstnarcotics.org or reach out to me directly. And last but not least, I want to thank you, dear listener, for tuning in and your support. This project, or social experiment if you will, has been the greatest experience of my life, and it wouldn't be possible without listeners like you. Now, let's get on to our discussion with Stephen Slate. I'm curious, without getting too far ahead from your story, you, you, now you went to St. Jude. They had a program similar in place, and that's how you got off heroin. Is that right? Yeah. It was 2002, early 2002, when I went to the St. Jude retreat. And the program, it was very in your face immediately that you don't have a disease. That's silly. This is not a disease. And I was very relieved mm-hmm. by that because 
that had always been a troubling idea for me and was from the beginning of my, you know, five year sort of journey through rehab and taxes and methadone programs and psychiatrist's office, all that, right? Mm-hmm. The disease thing was always very tough for me, but I had started to believe it. And this, these were the first people I ran into, and they said, you don't have a disease, you're just trying to be happy. Mm-hmm. You're just doing this because you think you need to do it to be happy. But there's other ways to be happy in life, basically. I'm really oversimplifying that. Right, right. right. But, but those were the most important things. This is your choice, and um, you you could be happier not doing it. Consider that. Mm-hmm. And now, what was so meaningful about that is every time I was trying to quit, it was to stop bad things from happening. It wasn't to be happier. Right. It was not to make my life better. It was it damage was control. Damage control, right? Yeah. yeah. I did not believe, you know, I always thought letting go of heroin would leave me feeling deprived and miserable. And sure, maybe I wouldn't go to jail, right? And maybe this or that bad thing wouldn't happen. I could maybe finally stabilize and have a job and a nice place to live. You know what I mean? Like, Maybe I could stop all this destruction. Right. But there wasn't anything to look forward to. Feel completely empty, miserable. Right. Yeah. Right. And and nobody in any of those systems of help that I went to, and I'm sure I could have found a little bit of it in maybe AA, you know, talk about being rocketed into the fourth dimension and different, you know, different mm-hmm. things in the promises, but, but which was like with a bunch of spirituality stuff that I didn't, um, that I tried to make die with me, but didn't, you know, mm-hmm. everybody in, in, in all the systems of help that I was in was basically saying like, yeah, we know it sucks. You have to give up all substances forever because you're an addict, and we know that they're great, and uh, you're self-medicating with them, and so all your depression and everything else is going to be even worse now that you can't self-medicate. <laughs> like right, essentially, right. that was the message, right? right? You know, is like this is going to suck, but hey, we can fight this one day at a time for the rest of life, and it was just a miserable outlook, and so yeah. it was never attractive. To me, I was never excited to change, none of it. And so I would always go back worse than before, like they predict that you will. And then I come to this place, St. Jude Retreat, which now we call it the Freedom Mall Retreat. Mm-hmm. Developed the program more, but, but it's still contained and is built upon this basic thing of saying, look, you are in control of yourself. Nothing is forcing you to do you're not a pawn on the chessboard of life being pushed around by someone else, by some forces outside of yourself. You are choosing to do this because you think it's the thing you need for happiness at this point. But consider that maybe you could be happier changing. And let's really flesh that out, talk about what that means, and see if there's possibility there. And if there is, you can choose to go in that route. That's what was there. That was what was said to me. That was yeah. so powerful. And after five years of struggle, I happily quit heroin and all drugs. I didn't do any substances for almost five years. And 
and then I then I was like, okay, I will uh, drink Dolph. like a normal person, yeah. pretty much. You know, and by that point, I didn't hear alcohol or drugs or any of it, and it wasn't. Do you think there was never any issue? Be, go ahead. I was just I'm curious. Do you think treatment serves a purpose? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm purpose. just I'm curious because I feel like, for me, a big issue that I have with treatment, and I think that you'll agree with this, and I really am curious to hear your thoughts, is we need to work towards a separation of treatment and recovery. Uh-huh. But, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to... Can not... you explain more what, what you mean by that, though? I think it's something like 78% of treatment facilities implement 12 steps as a staple of their curriculum, and mm-hmm. in my opinion treatment should be treatment and recovery should be recovery it's almost like a separation of church and state it's like you're mixing spirituality with something that should be scientific and sure i'm not i'm not not saying that we shouldn't uh familiarize people with with recovery because it, Mm -hmm. it is a option but i'm also saying that it shouldn't be the you know quote unquote bible of of Maintaining a healthy lifestyle, which is really what it comes down to, in my opinion. Sure. Yeah. Treatment is a ritual, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And the, the purpose that I think it serves, some of the, are you familiar with the idea of conspicuous consumption? No, I'm not. At all. All right. So conspicuous consumption is when you purchase something, you consume something to send a signal, right? Like, you drink a fancy wine to try to send a signal that you are cultured, right? And elite, upper class. Okay. Right? We're spending so much more on healthcare than is ever going to matter. Right. You know what I mean? And I'm making these numbers up right now, okay? But if we're spending 30000 a year per person, really it's only the first three grand that. Ends up being valuable, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's not even real money. Wasting, we're wasting a bunch on top, basically to prove that we care and that we're working for our health. And uh, there was this great book, Elephant in the Brain, where they talk about this concept. And the guy, you know, he brings up the example of you know what they did to George Washington uh, when he was dying, or to this king in England when he was dying, and and they did, they did bloodletting. They, you know, put a red hot poker up his ass. They oh, kidding, <laughs> really? Smoke. Right. They did all of these crazy rituals. Medical. Right. They used to call this barbaric medicine back in the day. Okay. Um, or heroic medicine. It was barbaric. They called it heroic medicine. Benjamin Rush, one of the guys who, who signed it the uh, Declaration of Independence. He's the first person to call alcoholism a disease. He was a practitioner a lot of, of, a, of a lot of this stuff, and they called it heroic. Mm-hmm. Anyways, most people knew those things weren't going to work, but to prove that the king was getting the best care and willing to go through everything it took to stay alive for his subject, he let them stick a red-hot poker up his ass blow smoke in him <laughs> and put leeches on him. No, I've heard of the, no, I've heard of the leeches. That is just bizarre, man. 
Like, what was the scientific thought behind that? You know what I mean? I have no idea. And it might be, it might be exaggerated a red hot poker, but check out Elephant in the Brain. They have a great recounting. No, even, even the leeches though, it's, it's outrageous. It's like, why would you think that this makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. But the King and even George Washington, right. And the people in the King's court or the people surrounding president, had to make sure that they went through all of this elaborate stuff to prove that they pulled out every stop to keep them from dying, right? To have faith in the public, to have faith in the leaders and the people surrounding the leaders. Mm -hmm. They had to demonstrate, they had to show that they were really doing what it took to recover from whatever it was, right? And They're going beyond what we even know will work. Now we're just throwing stuff at the wall to see if, you know, because he's got to try the most... That's exactly. just insane. Isn't that, the state of a, isn't that the state of addiction treatment today? Riding yeah, really. Horses? I mean, I know that's a that's low-hanging fruit to make fun of equine therapy, right? <laughs> but but it, it is a little ridiculous. You're going to do a ropes course. You're going to ride horses. In the passages video, you're like sea kayaking, right? Yeah, you're and, acupuncture. Um, and then you're going to have you're going to have acupuncture. You're going to have group therapy, individual therapy. You're going to eat a macrobiotic diet or some other kind of nutrition, smoothies. Everybody's on smoothies. Something that's not sustainable. Yeah, smoothies are fantastic. Yeah, great. It's Smoothies great, right? What does it have to do with whether I walk outside and shoot up heroin, right? <laughs> but it looks so pleasant. Really? <laughs> like, honestly, right? But treatment is this giant... It's a, it's a sort of conspicuous consumption. You have to show to whether it's the law or your spouse or your parents that you're willing to go through all of these motions, whether we know that they work or not. And we know that most of the time there isn't even a correlation between people going to treatment and getting well, right? right. Well, you know, most of the time. But sometimes there is. But it keeps everybody happy that you're going through the motion and that you're going to meetings and counseling and that you're going to therapy and getting all those medications and, you know, just all of it is an active conspicuous consumption. Right, so, okay, I see you know, and it it makes everybody else feel all right. And even if even when they know that it doesn't work, and you know, it's weird when when I first went for treatment in the the late nine mid in I guess it was ninety seven first time I went. I really kind of knew we had didn't work, you know. And then you even had a few years later, like South Park did the episode with the revolving door of the rehab. I mean, it was such a joke. Everybody knew rehab didn't work, but you had to go. You had to, you're right. You've got to, to make do something it, just to appease you your have family to in a do lot of ways. Something. Right. Yeah. And I've known people, I, I had a friend who died a, a year or two ago after being in one rehab after another for about 18 years, you know, and it's going to do with smoke and joint. His parents would throw in another rehab. And um, they had, you know, it, it wasn't working. Right. At a certain point. But. So what does. What was the alternative? Right. The alternative is this. Is to say, you know what? 
I guess we have to accept that you're going to live your life and do the drugs you want to do. And if you accept that, we have this strange idea in our society that, that allowing other people to live the way they want to live is somehow endorsing the way they live. And we can't bear to do that. We're against mm-hmm. drug use and intoxication. And so, you know, even though we know it doesn't work, we go through this giant ritual because to not go through it would be like saying, as parents, I don't care about my kids. It would be like saying, I'm now, I'm not saying it, it means that, but that's how in our culture it would be perceived. Right. If you don't make your kid keep going to rehab, I mean, you just want to let them die, huh? You know, I, so I think it's a giant act of conspicuous consumption. It's a ritual we go through. And sometimes, at the same time as people are going through that ritual, they do change their mind about drug use and they do start to say, you know what, be happy you're not doing that. I agree with you that it takes a change in perception to find, I think that's what you're saying, to find significant yeah. sustainable change. Because if you're doing it just to make you save face, to appease other people, it's not going to work. You're never going to be happy and you might as well just be doing drugs. I was, I've been there before yeah. when I was, you know, like quote unquote dry drunk and but it, I was suicidal. Let me, let, me, let me jump in for a second though and point out something really important, right? Mm-hmm. If we're talking about leeches and, and having bloodletting, right. it's not a matter of whether it's in your heart for, to, for it to work or not, right? And with the rehab, I don't think you have to want the equine therapy to work. You you have to have the change of mind about drugs, and that really has nothing to do with the equine therapy. Yeah. You know, you got no, what I'm agree. saying? I totally, it's kind of I totally completely do. independent of it. Because for me, I had an overdose in 2014, and I was just like, I, I, I was in the hospital for two weeks, and I ended up going to rehab after, but I don't think that yeah. I needed to. Like, at that point, it just it didn't matter. Like I was just done. at that point, you knew you you knew you were gonna like really at least take a break. Is that what you're getting? At? Exactly, exactly right. Like, and I'm I'm grateful that I went to mm-hmm. rehab, but I, I genuinely yeah. believe you know at at that point, and I've I've tried rehabs. I'd been to three uh, in that year. I had overdosed before, but that just was a breaking point for me. So I, yeah, I, and that's that change in perspective that that will make it work. But we're trying to beat our heads against the wall, trying to force this change in perspective. Yeah. What does treatment, proactive treatment, good treatment look like, in your opinion? I don't believe addiction is a disease. And it's very important. I don't think it's just semantics. Mm-hmm. If it's not a disease, I don't think you can treat it. Okay. Treatment supposes something like a virus or a broken bone, even or something that is physical in nature, right? So what about... And that a doctor can physically manipulate or apply a medicine to in some way, and it will change it. I don't mean and to interrupt you, but I I, I'm, drug, I need, I'm really curious. Yeah. How do you feel of mental illness, then? Are those considered diseases, in your opinion? Once This is what Thomas Schott said about mental illness, is, is once they find a, a, a verifiable neurological cause of a mental illness, they stop calling it a mental illness. And, you know, and he brings up epilepsy 
and Alzheimer's and those sort of things, they're, they're not treated in the same way. You don't go for talk therapy for Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of the things that we call mental illnesses are um, not really brain-based. You know, they're not they're not neurological okay. in nature. Or put it this way, they're no more neurological, right? Because addiction is, is considered a mental illness, right? Yeah, sure. The evidence we're told is that, well, the brain changes in all these ways. You know, when when we can we can see different right, different areas uh, of the brain, the brain functioning. Activity. Yeah. Yeah. And um and you know, something I realized very early on was that you know what everything you're describing here sounds a lot like the neurological process of learning and habit formation. And I didn't even know that much when I realized right. this, which was 2005. But I, I was reading this transcript of Alan Leshner speaking with uh, Bill Moyers, and Leshner like you know was going on and on about brain disease, and and then then Moyers was like, "Huh, it sounds a lot like learning." And it was just like an offhanded comment. Mm-hmm. And I was in a neuroscience, neuropsych class. So, I mean, I was like reading all this stuff. I was like, oh my God, yeah, that's exactly what it is. And now, finally, um, Mark Lewis has done these amazing breakdowns. He's a neuroscientist. And he has looked at every little piece of brain activity that Nora Volkow or whoever is telling you that this is a brain disease and here's why. And he picked apart every piece of it and showed why it's exactly just normal brain functioning and what happens with the acquiring of skills and habits. And so it's so addiction, even though you can show that there's interesting things going on in the brain, right. at the end of the day, that doesn't make it a mental illness. The brain is actually working how it's supposed to. Right? So uh-huh. I think a lot of other mental illnesses are like that. Like we could probably point to some different brain activity, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that brain activity is the cause. But if it's, I totally get what you're saying. I'm also diagnosed as bipolar. And when I had that, the overdose, like even the mental illness, like went away, it's like something just changed. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, there's still aspects of the, the bipolar there. But like just in my psyche, something on a very fundamental level changed. If you're unaware of that and you, you can't consciously change that, and it takes trauma of some sort or some other catalyst to initiate that change, isn't I've, to me that's oh, what yeah. makes it an, you know a disease or a disorder. I don't even know if I would call it a disease. I feel like it's a disorder though at that point. Yeah, I <clears throat> I would say. Uh... You know, disorder is a slippery word in our language right now. Mm-hmm. It's it's when you call something a mental disorder or whatever, then people mean, oh yeah, they're sick and you know, medical. And I think other people look at it, you know, like you no, know, technically disorder just means, you know, like I saw Carl Hart uh, the other day. He was on Canadian television. There's a little video going around of it, and. Um, and he said, you know, addiction is not a brain disease. That's a myth. There's, there's no evidence for that. And um, and he said, what it is, is it's a disorder. And that means that the person's drug use is interfering with their life in 
such and such a way, creating negative consequences, and they are upset about the way they <laughs> interfere. Yeah, they don't <laughs> like the it. Way, yeah, and they don't like that. And and so, you know, he did not, in his definition, called it a disorder, but in no way did it indicate, like, that this is a disease, right? right you know right. what I mean? But most other people, say they hear the word disorder, and they do think of it pretty much the same as disease. So, because, like, I don't have uh, psoriasis, and they tell me that that's a partially immune right, right. or something like that. And, and to me, that's very medical. You know, I was on injections for a couple of years for it, and, and I wouldn't consider that something that I, I change by perspective, you know, although you do happen to think psoriasis is a little bit psychological. Too. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but so, anyways, you said that your. Uh, Something drastically changing your perspective that also seems to affect your bipolar. Yeah, which kind of it supports what you're saying. The fact that I guess you could say all of these mental disabilities, mental disorders that that you would label as not so a disease, I, I could see there being a correlation between what triggers them and what turns them off. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. So that's really interesting to me. But I, I guess, like what I said, it comes back to if it's not something that you're doing consciously, is it a disorder, disorder at that point? Can it be treated? Can we prove that we're able to Im- improve their ability to function if we, if we provide some sort of therapy? And to me, the programs in place currently aren't doing that, at least not on yeah. a consistent level so yeah um oh go ahead what were you no I, I was just gonna talk more about the uh your thoughts on the link between mental illness and and addiction well um so one of the ways that i explain it in the freedom model is to say like you know there's a correlation there but that doesn't necessarily um you know that doesn't necessarily show it's causation Right, because a lot of people will say, and I'm going to tell you this part right here. I stole this straight from Stan. Yeah. And uh, Stan looked at the, the um, he looked at the statistics about trauma and addiction, right? And with people with the super high trauma scores, something like 15% of them have an alcohol problem, Right. Mm-hmm. And for people with the absolute lowest trauma scores, like five percent of them have an alcohol problem. So, are you, are you familiar with you know, ACE are, scores? This is exactly what okay. we're talking about. Yeah, is the exactly ACE right. Study. Yeah. So they're like seven to ten score on ACE or whatever it is. Right. Uh, so you know, and people have been saying this for years. Like, oh, so you know, you're three times more likely. To you know, have an alcohol addiction if you've been traumatized, and it does make it sound pretty awful or whatever. I mean, you're also at least twice as likely to have an addiction if you're if you're a man, right? <laughs> you know, but you know when you know when people tell us trauma, we feel like, oh well, that's it. I had this shit happen when I was a kid, so I'm fucked. I'm doomed. You know, and right. I saw it myself. I had. Uh, a bunch of horrible, rough things happen in childhood, and and 
and and I've thought at times, well, I guess that just means I'm I'm doomed to be some kind of addict. I, I was reading a book that a couple of years ago. It, fi- it it made me fear that I would be an addict again for the first time because it was so really? haunting on on the, this trauma stuff and and about like, the things I don't want to get into, right? But like that, like oh yep, that's me, that's me, that's me. Or I guess. Well, when the fuck am I going to relapse and start shooting it's up crazy. again? I really started to like feel that for reading it, but so I think it's a very toxic ideology. But somehow we don't feel that way when, if I was to say to you that men are twice as likely to have addictions than women, don't necessarily feel like okay, well that means I'm going to be an addict for the rest of my life. But it's fact, you know. Right. It, it it might even be it, it depending on the drug. It would depending on which drug it is. It can be even more. So Stanton looked at that and he said, okay, sure, you're three times more likely. But guess what? You're, you know, if you have the tri- high trauma score, 15% of people, yes, that's three times more likely to have an alcohol problem. But guess what? 85% of people with these super high trauma scores do not have alcohol problems. Okay, so the, and, the advert, inverse of the equation. Inverse, yeah, we, okay. and, and I know that's very basic and simplistic, but yeah, think about it. You know, we we call these things causes all the time. Okay, so trauma causes, you know, now we, all we know is that it's correlated with, but we say trauma causes alcoholism. And but where, where do you get off calling something a cause when, when you can... Have that cause be present, but eighty-five percent of the people don't have the effect. I highlighted uh, our actually an article on ACE scores a few months back, and uh, they they speak with an addiction doctor. Doctor, and he said we shouldn't call it addiction; it should be called ritualized compulsive comfort seeking. <laughs> okay, I mean, I do agree that there's comfort seeking and drug use for sure. Right. Right. But that was his. But I don't know that you're fated to be in discomfort for the rest of your life because you've had this or that. And no, and I agree I, with you. I agree with you. But I think the point that he's making is that it becomes almost innate when you, when you're you're not self aware yeah. of your environment and of of these things. Sure. It's like the kid on the bike who falls and no one's around. You made this analogy in one of your podcasts. Um, he, you know, rubs his knee and gets back on the bike. But if his parents are there and they freak out, he starts immediately acting like the world's going to end. Yeah. Because he now, because his parents don't have to frame what he's going through in a different way. You know, like nobody there to tell you how to perceive this. Um, kids basically are like, oh, that hurt. Okay. Moving on. Right, they make it into a disaster. They make it into a disaster, and yeah, I definitely feel like the same thing goes on with drug and alcohol use. I've seen especially too many people who, you know, were just doing what average fifteen, sixteen-year-olds would be doing in the way of drugs, and they're the one who gets caught and shipped off to rehab, and all of a sudden that person becomes a disaster. All all the other kids. Fuck around, get in a little bit of trouble. Isn't it ridiculous that, at least in my opinion, it's insane that we have the same sort of like 
treatment for everybody. Mm-hmm. Like a 16 year old kid smoking pot doesn't need to be in treatment with heroin addicts. Like it's, it's not the same thing at that point. Just crazy. Uh, no, but, and, and yeah, but I don't think, I'm going to go back to your question. Here. What do you think is the right kind of treatment? So I don't think addiction is these, so I don't think any kind of treatment is right. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we have to get out of the this construct that we're treating a disease. And there's no disease, so we can't treat it, right? There are people, and I, I do need to preface this by saying this doesn't mean, uh, people make this into a moral thing, like, if you don't believe in the disease and that thing, you think everybody is an awful person who deserves to suffer <laughs> some such thing. Mm-hmm. And I don't, everyone who uses drugs is just bad, you know? And, and I we put not, such a duality I, on it. I, yeah, they do. And I, and, and I don't, I don't believe that at all. And, and other people, you know, people write to me all the time and they'll say things like, yeah, but then you wouldn't want to help anybody if you thought, that, you know, they were, you know, sort of responsible for their own mess or like whatever. And I was like, right. are you a psycho? Are you, are you a real psychotic person that, that you will only help and have sympathy for people whose problems are the result of disease? That's it. I'm sorry, but I'm human and I make tons of mistakes in my life. And I know Everyone most, does. every human does. Yeah. None of us are perfect. You don't have to have a disease. To deserve sympathy or compassion, right? Or empathy, right? So I need to prep that before you know. Still, but so I don't think that we need to get out of calling it a disease because it is not. If we can get out of that, then we got to get out of treating people, and then we got to say, okay, we can help some people. What does help look like? So not treatment, but help. What does help look like? Well, it depends on what the person's goals are. If if that person says, I just want to, you know, use my drugs every day and not be harassed, maybe that means we stop harassing that person, right? If, and, yeah. and, and if it's that I need to, like, I'm, I love heroin, I don't seem to stop any time, uh, but, you know, I am afraid of overdose right now because everything's going around. Maybe help looks like saying, oh, I'll some kid and whatever else, right? Like maybe it's that. And if the person says, God, I feel beholden to drugs and I would like to not use them, but I can't imagine that. And I just keep feeling the need to keep going back and using them, then, then okay, well, helping them maybe means how can we help you to imagine that? Right. right. What information could be given? Because you're talking about a problem of motivation and of commitment. You know. Yeah, I don't know. If it's, yeah, for sure, commitment as well. Like, I don't know what you're, but you're talking about like a human problem that is not. Although the brain is involved in it, and as the, the brain is involved in me talking to you right now, looking out the window at the right. birds. Whatever, yes, the brain is involved in everything we do, but the brain is not the main thing here. It's the person's outlook on life and their options. And um, how would you help somebody 
who is just graduating high school and says, boy, I don't know what to do with my life. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about going to college, but I wouldn't know what to do. Well, you start to help them figure out what the options are, right? Help them make them more aware of the options to educate. You don't give them a pill, right? Like when they're paralyzed in fear and don't know what to do with their lives. Uh, Some people so do. You know, what's that? Some people do. They're, they're remedies to, to treat everything with a pill. I think that it's a big problem with yeah. with Americans is sure. we are creating so many disorders and diseases. Like sometimes it's we need yeah. to realize that's just how we think sometimes, you know? Yeah. With me yeah, with me, I guess part of the reason why I look at addiction as a disease is because it like you said, you feel like you need it. And I'm sure you're familiar mm-hmm. with, with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It it, it shifts that pyramid and it, it makes it into something that feels like a psychological need. I know, but you know, I had a, I had a girlfriend that broke up with, or that broke up with Yeah, me. this is a good point. <laughs> right, right. And you're heartbroken. When I was 18, going away to school and I was heartbroken, I felt like I needed her. I started to feel crazy. started to behave in a way that was almost like a stalker, you know? But I don't think I would call that a disease. I That's a good that point. Kid, you know, like really confused and not knowing that like other people would love him and that there was potential to be happier in other ways. And it's a similar, him. I would say it's a similar obsession. Yeah. So I want to get out of this charade of this is a disease and we're treating a disease. The only, if you notice, at the end of the day, people make these arguments that here's why it's a disease. And if, if ever they're challenged in any way, and sometimes even when they're not challenged, their argument always ends with, come on, let's just do this so we can get people the treatment they need, which is totally circular, right? Because, it, it, I mean, that's, that's whether they need treatment or not depends on whether it is a disease. But they're making this appeal to like sympathy and 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 consequences and like trying to almost like morally hold you morally hostage that if you don't support this position, that means you're heartless and you want people to yeah. die. Like they that's ultimately always the argument they come back around to. It's a damn charade. We shouldn't play it anymore. We should respect people's rights to use the substances that they want. And um and not into you know, and not try but to coerce them into changing. Why and, have we? And if they go ahead, no. If they do want to change, then we sort of treat that or approach it like any other life problem that people talk to others about, whether that's relationships or career or finances. You go to knowledgeable sources and you try to figure out your options and make a choice. And that's the way to help people with it. Not to pretend that you're treating it. Yeah, you're treating something that that isn't there. Yeah. Yeah, there's no powerless. There's literally literally no such thing as powerlessness or loss of control. When you use drugs, you want to use drugs. 
See, but about I, I mean, I can remember but, times where I would black out literally and not remember like going to get the drugs. Yeah. So it's like I mean, but it, it totally feels like a loss of control, man. And I know that you've been there, so you you, you can relate. But it's just crazy to me that you think that it that it's completely like that's just now, like I said, like I get it. Out. Everything you're saying makes sense. It's just it's hard for Did me to you, yeah. go for it. When you say blacked out, are you talking about like you got drunk and blacked out sort of thing? No, I'm talking like I was missing, I, going through really bad withdrawals. I remember going to get drugs and I'm like missing parts of the time going to get, collect them. Yeah. I mean, I miss parts of the time of like, you know, taking the, the taking the train to work every day, right? Like, okay, yeah. Because I driving a long drive day after day after day after day, so you stop recording memories, you know. And I'm like on my phone or whatever, and then somehow I get off at the right stop, you know. I'm I'm looking, I'm reading Kindle books on my phone, and then all of a sudden I'm there, mm-hmm. and I don't really remember the ride. And and I think that this happens with drug runs and anything that becomes habitual. But maybe you're talking about something more dramatic than that. It seemed, it, I mean, it just seems like it was more intense. Like, there are pieces that are missing. It was like, I, I can still, if I'm driving home from work, for example, and it's a long drive, I can still recall being on the road. Like, there was there was a total lack of recall. Yeah. So, but this was like, I was going, I was, I mean, around that time I was in the psych ward because I was losing my mind from drugs, from using drugs and having untreated bipolar. Yeah. But it's just fascinating that the best quote unquote treatment that I've gotten has been life experiences, because that further proves your argument that that it's not about treatment; it's about being compassionate and teaching. Yeah, and and being allowed to explore. So this is the thing I really don't like about treatment is that it comes in and imposes a goal and says, okay, you forced yourself to carry out that goal. And this is really what the cops are doing, what parents are doing, and else. All right, you have to quit drugs. The end point, the, the decision is made. Okay, so what do we have to do to make sure that you can do that? Have someone hold your paycheck. Make sure you're in meeting with it and all your friends are sober, right? And uh, just like, how can we create a world that nudges and deterministically makes you not use drugs? Because that's what has to happen. Right. Is that you never touch drugs again. I tried to carry things out that way many times, and eventually I just say, screw it, and go back to using shit ton of drugs. Mm-hmm. But, um, I feel like when I finally successfully quit, starting being years ago now, I I chose like I really chose it for myself. I really was like, you know what? And, and the way that it was presented to me by the person who was directly most helpful to me, um, this guy Clayton Walters, who worked at uh, the retreat at the time, he said, "These drugs are always going to be there." There's always, you you keep hearing that the heroin is more pure than it used to be. 
And he said, you know, you I know you do a lot of ecstasy too, and I didn't even have ecstasy uh, here in Schenectady when I was doing drugs. You know, and he gave me this talk right. about all the drugs that he has missed out on, the new designer drugs he's heard about since he quit. And he's like, he's like, they ain't going nowhere. Our drugs are always going to be there. This time that you try to quit or whatever, if that's what you're doing, why don't you see if you can be happier without them? And if not, you know, give yourself a decent amount of time and know that you've actually put in the effort, like say one year, really try to be happier without drugs than you were with them. And if it works out, great. You keep that up. If it doesn't work out and you realize I need drugs to be happy, well, then you can kind of go back to them guilt-free, right? And whoever, you know, your parents, your family, whoever else, says something and be like, look, I have tried it. This is what I need, you know? So, like, then you sort of wash your hands of it. But I don't think you ever really try to be happy without them. And so that's how he presented it to me. And it was none of this, you have to stop, Steve, or you're going to die. It was none of that crap. It was, why don't you make a discovery? And so that's how I approached it, and I did make the discovery. And and so I think treatment, most of the time, robs people of this chance to make the discovery because they're going through the motion instead of, and they're, and they're complying with treatment or not complying with treatment or whatever it mm. is. Because you have all these motions you can go through. You can be like, Mom, look, I've gone to two meetings every day this week. Sorry, I relapsed. It's tough. Yeah, right? You can like, check off all the right know, boxes. It's not going to change you your feelings. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, and, and you're trying to carry out a goal, but you were never really invested in it. You know, I think most of the, the false quits it's not that we don't want to quit. Like, and there's one line in the book where I say that I do regret, where I sort of said something about people don't really want to quit. But people do really want to quit, but they want to use drugs more than they want to quit. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so it's like wanting to quit means it's like in a certain sense means, well, I just want all this craft to end. But wanting to use drugs is like, I feel like I need these drugs in my life. And so really, like... Well, that's the thing is you feel like you're filling a need. Yeah, yeah. So it's not that the desire to quit isn't there, but the desire to use still is and it's very hot. Right. And and so that's what we have to look at. And and so I developed a desire to live my life with, without drugs, like I started to look at like what is good about living without drugs. Not what is bad about drugs, but what is good and new and refreshing and maybe exciting about living without being intoxicated, you know? Yeah. And let me go try to make that happen. In desiring that mind state more than intoxication it's a, it's a little bit different than like, right? Than the desire to quit because no, that I, was there for a long time in a way. I, I'm sorry. I know I'm making this into weird semantics, but no, no, not at all. I, I agree with what you're saying, but I wanted to circle back to something you mentioned. You, you talked about the role that uh, that happiness plays in your pursuit of happiness, which is one of the big principles in the book. It's the positive drive principle, and it's so 
on point to me because to me when I wanted to, didn't want to, when I was using I was miserable. I wanted to be happy, but I was miserable, and I I've, I've realized that I was using to find pleasure, and I was confusing pleasure with happiness. Mm-hmm. So, sure. so pleasure is, can be can be one component of happiness, right? Right. Like it can, right. It can be one kind, you know, which is to be like, well, I feel something good right now. Yeah. See, I think pleasure can be the byproduct of happiness, but I think pleasure and happiness are two very distinctly different things. Yeah. I feel like, to me, I feel like it's a subcategory. Like, it, it falls under the umbrella. A lot of things fall under the umbrella of happiness, though. It's a very broad term, and that's kind of one of the bigger problems that we have in communication with the freedom model, but the best we could come up with is happiness. Right. No, like I think happiness is the exactly the perfect word because, like I said, I was pleasure-seeking, and to me, pleasure is instant. It's not long-lasting. It has a shelf life. Uh, yeah. It's not yeah. fulfilling. Happiness is more everlasting. It's it's almost eternal. It, it exists through times of good and bad. It, it's more constant. Well, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people look at it, the, well, the way I look at happiness is kind of like the undercurrent, right? And so that even when things are going bad or whatever, you feel like generally, overall, you have something going for you or you're moving in a positive direction, then you're still happy for all the crap in a way, even when you're right, down. You right. know what I mean? Like, it's still, like, there to be instantly accessed. But um, pleasure is a big part of happiness. And if you didn't have those moments of pleasure in life, um, I agree. And there's so many terms. There's pleasure, joy, happiness, contentment. You know, you could you could go on and on with all these like related terms. Right. Um, I, well, I'm not saying pleasure is inherently bad. I'm saying that it, I was obsessing over pleasure at the expense of happiness. I guess. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then it you start to not, be not that very happy with it, right? Yeah, you're um, like miserable, not, but you're confused. Like not that you're not having much pleasure with the pleasure anymore, but you don't know what else there is. And like I said before, you can have sympathy for people based on that situation we get ourselves into, and it's hard to see our way out of. And it doesn't require having a disease to have sympathy for people who stuck in that situation. Same thing when people are stuck in a in a relationship that is going nowhere and people are bitter at each other, but you just can't imagine yeah, living with anyone else. Yeah, and it doesn't mean that you have to hate them. So you understand, like, we're very human to back ourselves into these corners at times, you know, but more people than not put themselves out of these corners. It's always important to remember. Yeah. Switching gears a little bit, I'm curious, why do you think we're seeing an increase in the opiate use? Uh, I, well, I don't know how much of an increase, right? It's, it's sort of flattened for a few years around 2.1 million opioid addicts, right? And back in 2002, it was about somewhere like 1.6, 1.7 million opioid addicts. So... We have had a rise, but it's like 
less than 25% in 2002. Um, but it like took more of the share from other drugs. And I think cocaine is making a comeback now. It seems like meth is scared. too. Yeah. And people are scared off of the opioid market because even if you buy like an Oxycontin on the street right now, it might just be fentanyl pressed up into a pill form. Right, right. right. With a bunch of other garbage, right? And But I think throughout the history of drugs, there's always been an ebb and flow of different drugs and and but we uh, we have had like a slow growth in the number of sort of regular drug users for sure um but it adds and flows between which drugs they're they're on and you know i don't i don't know why particularly everybody went for opioids when they did i, I couldn't tell you for sure but maybe it was because they were more either easier to get back i didn't start on any kind of prescription opioids myself. I went straight to heroin. Did you really? Uh, we didn't. Yeah, I mean... That's an unusual progression. Of course, there were people that... I mean, it was my first drug. You oh, know? okay. But that was your first opiate, I, though. I, my first drug was marijuana and then LSD, then alcohol and, and ecstasy, and, and then I think heroin. And the prescription opioids just weren't around as much back then when I started, you know what I mean? And right. I was in Philadelphia and it was very easy to get heroin. I was already going to that neighborhood to buy angel dust with somebody. And well, I think that's a big reason why we've seen the rise know. is the availability uh-huh. from pharmaceutical opioids has, or in the nineties, at least it, it really, it really kind of took off. Yeah. The rise of Oxycontin prescriptions from 97 till 2002 went up, I think it was 402%, mm-hmm. which is incredible to think about. Yeah. But, like, let's consider this, all right? Um, there is recent figures I've seen from, like, 2013, and then I think 2017. I think in 2015, there was, like, 98 million people that took prescription opioids in the United States. Mm-hmm. And then it's somewhere around like 93 million for 2017. Okay. And in and, and both of those years, there's still consistently about the number of opioid addicts is around 2.1 million. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it works out that, you know, only about 2% of the people taking these drugs in a year are having, you know, addiction. And, and you know, I mean, that, that doesn't mean 2 million are getting addicted year year. It's 2% of, of, of annual users. That's, do you, know, do you have any guess on what percentage of annual alcohol users are considered to be addicted? I'm curious. What do you think it would be? It's I have no I guess. What's that? It's about eight or nine percent of so, annual alcohol users that the diagnosis for alcohol use disorder. So it's higher. Right. It's 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 about three or four times higher than the rate of annual opioid users who have opioid use disorder. And so there's I, I don't really think there's anything special about opioids. Yes, they do create withdrawal, but in fact the withdrawal is not 
anywhere near as bad as the withdrawal from alcohol. Right. It's easier to get into the withdrawal syndrome than into the alcohol. You, you really have to push it with alcohol to get withdrawal, right? Um, mm-hmm. But once you have it, it's pretty awful withdrawal. You can die from it, from alcohol withdrawal, but not really from opioid withdrawal. Only some people who are already on the edge of death can... Right, it can push you over. But yeah, you don't hear people overdosing yeah. and detox from opioids. Yeah, so um, I, I don't think there's anything special about the drug. I think it was just sort of in vogue for a while. But what I do worry about is the hype about it being addictive and putting more labels on things and more public awareness. About, like I think addiction was a charade and a fallacy and a fake thing, right? So... Creating awareness, in my mind, convincing people that they're going to get addicted, that the withdrawal is going to be unbearable after they take a bottle of Percocets for their, you know, sprained ankle for a week, right? Like, if you convince them that that's going to get them hooked, to me, I feel like we're going to manifest more of it eventually Mm -hmm. by all of our awareness campaigns I think we're going to make so what does we just have so much conflicting viewpoints we've got one on one hand we say we're like we want abstinence on the other we promote alcohol use what does responsible appropriate drug education look like or addiction education look like what should the conversation look like I would put forward the kind of ideas we have in chapters 17 through 20 of the Freedom Model, which I started out that section calling it Questioning Drug Effects. And it talks about the subjective nature of drug effects. And so what I would tell people, what I, I mean, what I would tell people in a nutshell is that drugs give us physical sensations. You might find those enjoyable. And, um, but don't make it more meaningful than that. Drugs do not take away stress, anxiety, depression. Drugs are not the most pleasurable thing on earth. They're one particular kind of pleasure, right? And it's mm-hmm. very subjective. Um, you know, somebody might, you know, uh, touch you sexually, right? Um, and if it's the person you want to touch you that way, it feels great. If it's not, it's <laughs> awful not, and not creepy, quite, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. And so, but so it's, so the nature of that pleasure is it, it has to do with perception and all sorts of things. And the nature of drug pleasure is exactly the same. Like, yeah, it's, you know, an opioid will sedate you. And mm-hmm. when I had to take a uh, Percocet after, um, what do you call it? I had tonsillectomy three right. years ago. I felt that sedation. I was like, this sucks and I can't wait for it to be over. I, I did not like it. I did not find it enjoyable at all. I recognized the feeling mm-hmm. of being on a bunch of Percocets, being like being on heroin. I did recognize that it. it felt the same way. But somehow, my 25-year-old self thought that was like the be-all, end-all. Right, right, right. You, know, you had to feel it all the time. And my 40-year-old self was like, this sucks, I can't wait for it to be done. <laughs> I feel sick. And for me to be clear-headed and get back to work. So all of a sudden, it wasn't pleasurable. 
right? Right. But we're afraid to tell people the truth about drugs, right? You're totally we're afraid, right. First of all, to let go of our fucking placebos, right? Like the the idea that alcohol takes away stress is just so nonsensical. And, and people tried to study it, and they can't find any proof of it. They find that people become more stressed when they drink. Uh, it's it's all over the map, right? Mm-hmm. And um, it raises all the physical symptoms of, of of stress, like higher blood pressure, heart rate, all sorts of things, right? It it does not relieve stress, but it's a great cultural little fiction placebo script that we can all hold on to for when I'm feeling upset by things I can have a drink. It's, it's it, marketing, it, man. It, yeah, it, it, it really is. So we tell people things like, well, yeah, heroin, it makes you feel so good that once you feel that feeling, you're going to be chasing it for the rest of your life. And that's like kind of a scare tactic, right? Like don't open that box. We tell them right. that we tell we tell young people that, and we tell them heroin is so dangerous you you probably die the first time you take it. We tell you know we tell them these two polar extremes is both the worst thing on earth and the best thing on earth, and the truth is somewhere in the middle. You know, and and I would say specifically about opioids, the truth is they've been in use for somewhere between six to 10,000 years. They're one of the yeah. only effective medicines help people do all sorts of things over time. And um, nobody ever even considered to call them addictive until about 150 years ago. Um, but well, I wanted to ask you about that. Candy when they needed to and stopped when they wanted to. Yeah, go ahead. Do you think that had anything to do with when they started synthesizing different drugs out of the poppy? Because I agree with you, and it's it's fascinating to me that we did use these for, like you said, ten thousand years, up until yeah. two hundred years ago. But that's also when morphine came around, and then heroin. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that it's probably a little bit of both. But what impact do you think that had? It had to have had some impact. But the problem with that is that when we were using morphine, right? When 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 Morphine was starting to really be used here around, I guess, the period of the Civil War, sometime mm-hmm. around then. Yeah. They were just using straight opium still in China, and they were said to have this massive problem over there where we were said to have a few soldiers of problem, and a few housewives that took, um, you know, those, those uh, patent medicines that contained, like, you know, some opium in them or whatever. We, we were said to have not much of a problem, and in China, supposedly everybody was all turned out on just regular opium. opium. That's a good, yeah. That's you interesting. Know, so, but that doesn't mean there's nothing to what you're saying. Like, right. Yeah, a more refined drug allows for more extreme use. Mm-hmm. But, there, but there were people that did die sometimes from taking too much opium. There were some people that, you know, had habits, but... In a time and place where it was the norm to get this drug, their habits didn't prove to be problems. You know, where you could, right. where it wasn't uh, an illegal, overpriced commodity that you were fighting every minute of the day to get. It was something you could buy for nothing. 
And so, circling back to education on that point, we romanticize it because of just what you said. We make it the best and the worst thing. And yeah. everything that we preach on drug education is in a lot of ways bullshit. You know, people go to the hospital yeah. and a pain pill feels just like heroin. It really does. But we don't yeah. tell people that. So then kids will take a Vicodin and they'll love the feeling and you just won't think and he minimal he'll minimalize it. That's what I did. And he yeah. won't he won't think that it can be an issue because it's not heroin. And it just contributes to this crack of shit society where the reality of it is if they should have said from the get go, you know, Vicodin is basically heroin. Yeah. You can take it when if you what break I an arm, like you're good. Say, Go ahead. What I would like to say to that kid is not watch out, you can get addicted to that. I would say to that kid, look, that's one kind of pleasure in life. And there are plenty more kinds of yeah, pleasure, yeah. happiness, etc. than that. That's a tingly feeling, it's all right, it's amusing. There's a lot more and a lot of different things like rather than saying like you might get addicted, because I feel like I'm gonna manifest it when I say it that way. Right. You know, um, right. because because the fact is, and I know you've heard this before, you probably watch Johan's TED Talk or something like that. Mm. Most of the people that, you know, have ever been dependent on opioids uh, did not behave like addicts at all. And, and that population are the millions of people who get put on morphine after surgery and then they just pull them off at cold turkey after two, three weeks sitting in the hospital with a constant morphine drip. They take them off it and they go through withdrawal. Right. And they, since they haven't been taught to fear that withdrawal and to interpret it as an imperative to get more of the drug, and because the context is I just came out of the hospital, they're like, well, oh, I'm sick. And they just deal with that sickness. And yeah. it does not drag them to go get more drugs, right? It's right. how you perceive that illness because it is. Any good doctor who's knowledgeable on this will tell you that opioid withdrawal is exactly like the flu. And I had a really bad case of the flu a few months ago. And I was like, I don't remember the last time I felt this bad. Oh, yeah, I do. It was back in the day going through opioid withdrawal. Yeah, I, I compared and, it to food poisoning. And, which is basically yeah. the same thing. Well, the worst part to me is the muscle, the muscle aches and pains, and the joint, the joint pain, and all of that is terrible. Um, but so most people go through that, and, and the fact is, we can deal with that. But the, the difference is when you're when you have the flu, you don't know that there's a little bit ten dollar bag you can go buy and snort it. All of a sudden, you won't feel like you have the flu no more, right? Like that doesn't mm -hmm. exist, so you don't crave it. But with heroin, <laughs> that bad, that ten dollars thing that will make the pain go away does exist. So we want it, but it, it, it's psychological, but, you know. Because what also exists is the knowledge of you know what three to seven days of right. this out, and I don't have to deal with it anymore. And I've done and, that with the flu. I've heard so many times from treatment and going to treatment myself, people, like you said, get worse in treatment. And it's like this self-fulfilling prophecy. For myself, I used to go through withdrawals and it, I just would go through them. And then after after treatment is when I started 
I didn't really go to extremes, but I went to more extreme than I had before, and I wouldn't go through the withdrawals anymore. Yeah, it's wild. It's like it validated another reason to use. Yeah, so that's the theme here is like this idea that we're addicted and forced and compelled. It's a psychological phenomenon going on here, right? And we've built this construct, and I want to deconstruct that. You know, stop playing the charade. No more. I'm addicted. I relapsed. I don't. I would never say. If I decided to go use heroin tomorrow for some reason, mm-hmm. I don't think I ever will for the rest of my life. But I would not say I relapsed. I would say I decided to get high. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's this, we put this dumb word on it that makes us passive victims. Like, oh, it just sort of happened. Right. No. Out of our control. You know, I started to. If we really identified what was going on, it, it would be, you know, I thought that heroin was what I needed to get the happiness I'm seeking in life. And the only way to not keep doing that is to examine that perspective and to change it. And, and I'm not going to do that if I play this passive victim and say, well, I relapsed. Oh, well, I was triggered because I, the Requiem for a Dream came on TV. It looked so good to shoot up heroin. started my mind thinking. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Like, constantly describing ourselves as, as passive, passive victims. I want to do away with all of that, even the word addiction. I, I just think it's, it's a toxic concept at this point. And so I say we have a preference a strong preference that our substance use habit is. Preferences change over life and over time. Right, and right. As we rethink things and are introduced to new options. Uh, it, I, I see it as a preference. I don't want to call it an addiction. I haven't recovered from an addiction. You can't recover from the, the desire and preference for, for shooting heroin either. You start to prefer not shooting it more, or you don't. You, it's not a matter of recovering something. So I don't call it recovery. I don't call it addiction. I don't call it using again a relapse. I say we have preference, and you know if you're using today, that's what you want to be doing. And if you change it, if you want to change it, you want to be doing something else. I, I, and I hope that's not nice. It doesn't give us a nice, neat thing by which to package this all, but. <laughs> Maybe that's the problem. Yeah. We are packaging this up as a We're trying phenomenon. To. Yeah. Instead of like, look, it's life. You know, it's things going in and out of relationships and jobs and careers and living somewhere else from here and there. This is life. Mm-hmm. And, and can we see the drug use as like a phase like that? Like anything else? If we did, I feel like a lot more people would get through it or get through it quicker. My view is addiction is oftentimes a symptom of another mental illness. Mm-hmm. And I think that, but again, this isn't a across the board solution or proposal. It, it, it worked in my case and it would, I think it would work in someone who's similar. Addressing the mental illness is the issue. It's not about a substance. Like addiction, addicts will tell you all the time, addiction isn't about drugs. It's about an obsessive compulsion. And to me, mm-hmm. it was like, it just seemed like it was mental to me. Like, I, I get everything you're saying, and I, I agree with a lot of what yeah. you're saying, but it's like, 
at what point is something not a disease? If it's subconscious and you don't realize that it's happening, if it's in your mind, is it still there? But it's mm-hmm. like it was still on a subconscious level prior to that. Like I couldn't do anything differently and I couldn't understand what was going on. Well, yeah, you can only, I mean, look, I believe you can only act within your own range of knowledge and judgment. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point in my life, I genuinely believe that I would be miserable unless I had heroin. Mm -hmm. And as long as I genuinely believe that, I really couldn't do otherwise, right? And I was ignorant of the fact that there was a potential for me to be happier without heroin. Do we want to call ignorance a disease? That's, yeah, that's a good point. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, we can say metaphorically ignorance is a disease, right? But, but not genuinely. Right. Right? And, um, and it's the same thing with, like, you know, having little self-confidence, bad self-image, and being with somebody who is horrible to you in a relationship. But sticking with them and, and having no impulse to leave because you just feel on some core level yeah, yeah. that you're lucky to have this person and, and nobody else would love you. That's <laughs> a good point. You know, yeah. like, that's a sad situation. And let's say you do have social anxiety, generalized anxiety, uh, depression, and bipolar. And, you know, let's say I'm like feeling bad in all of those ways. Right. Like, right, right. And if I really believe that the drugs balance me out and that I need them to feel somewhat normal. And I did start to believe that when I read some early dumb neuroscience article in my therapist's office, <laughs> like 1998, then if, if I really start to believe that at a core level, it's going to be pretty damn hard I'm not going to have the impulse to really let go of drugs. It's just going to feel horrible to have to let go. Right, right. They really do feel like they're doing something for me. I'm I'm trying to speak to what you're saying here. Like, oh, well, it's subconscious. We don't know entirely our our motivation for doing it. But, like, I just think, I feel like that's a lot of life. And that's a lot of going through experiences. And I don't know if it ever stopped. That's a lot. Of, no, I mean, it, honestly, it comes back to not being accountable. Like, really, like you're not accountable for your own perception. So, I mean, I get your your argument against it, but it's like it still felt like it was something out of my realm of reality. Yeah, yeah. Which I mean, like you know, different understanding for for whoever, whatever works for you is what it's important. Had I gone to to, to the freedom retreat and you guys were able to enlighten me that ple- on the fact that pleasure doesn't equal happiness. And I could have had all these, these lights go off and, and I could have followed the addiction model or like that totally could have been in the realm of possibility or the freedom model that totally could have been mm-hmm. within the realm of possibility. Um, but so, instead you did it the way, hold on, hold on. Instead on. You did it the way that the vast majority of people do it which is you were living your life, you had your ups and downs, and at some moment you thought differently. Yeah, more or less. And that's how everybody does it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so like I try to tell when people do, you know, call me about doing um, the private classes with me for the Freedom Model or talk to people about going to the retreat, first thing I say is like, look, 
you don't need me. And my goal is if you do sign up, is to show you why you don't need me. And yeah. You already have everything that it takes to change. You know, so if, if you do want this sort of education, I'm here to provide it. But let it be known, I will not change you. You will change yourself. You probably, the odds are already in your favor that you'd do it without me. But if you you think you want this help here, I think I can help you maybe do a little bit quicker by giving you some of the right information. But but by no means, do you need me? Mm -hmm. You don't. I don't care what a person has done. If you take Suboxone every day and you stay sober, you're the one who's choosing to stay to stay sober still. Right. The pill, the boxone, doesn't make you sober. Like, it makes it so that you won't have withdrawals. You know what I mean? Like, that's pretty much it. It's it's acting on such a low level, it's such a slow-acting opioid, right. that it's not going to give you the same kind of a high, unless you never take opioids, like, at all, and then you crush up some suboxone or whatever once in a while and take them. Like, because I have met people that do that. Mm-hmm. Um there was a girl at the, our retreat last year that that was her main drug problem was getting not suboxone but subutex, which is the one without naloxone. Right. Like, come to find out that a lot of people take that, but but generally, like suboxone doesn't make you feel the same as being on heroin, right? Because it's slow acting. It's got to be long. Yeah, there's no rush. It just it just sort of fills in the receptors. It fills them in half the way. It has a feeling effect, you know what I mean? But, like, you feel kind of a tiny little bit of something. If you squint so your eyes. Certainly, yeah, n- nobody who, yeah, nobody who wants to shoot up heroin all day is really going to be satisfied by that. But they'll, they'll stop in withdrawal, and either they're going to stop taking the Suboxone because they want to get high, or they're going to change their dosage every few days, right, manipulating it so that they, then they can get high. Mm-hmm. Or they're going to be like, you know what, I'm not in withdrawal. Okay, now I don't have to chase that. And, and you know what, I think maybe I could be happier spending my time doing other shit. So I'm putting my time and energy in front of And And if, if, if that's what they come to, that's the conclusion they come to, but the drug can't can't and does not force that kind of conclusion on anybody. It's still a process of the mind. It's up to the individual. So everybody who does this, whether they talk to Steve Slate about the Freedom Model, whether they go to a 12-step meeting, or they go to Hazelden, or they go to Suboxone, or whatever they do, anybody who successfully changes does so by changing their own mind. Can you force anybody to change their mind? No. The way that we try to do it in our culture is through fear. We try to scare people out of their mind. You know, like, we try to scare them away from doing drugs. But you can't really force somebody to change their mind. You know, so they might not do drugs for a little while. They're, oh, this asshole tracking me, trying to make sure I don't do this. And then the next thing, and as soon as you get the chance to sneak and to do it, you will. You know? Yeah. It's all it's based on is fear. So um, everybody who successfully changes does so on their own. And great news is that um, the odds of getting over any addiction are over 90%. And for drugs specifically, it's 
like 96, 97, 98, 99, depending on what drug you're talking about. Odds are that most people who ever fit the diagnosis get a lose problems. Mm-hmm. So I think we make it much harder than it has to be, and we've got a lot more pessimism than it has to be. Yes, there are some people dying that is really horrific and uh, tragic. But the good news is still most people are favored to get over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why I do the podcasting and everything because I, I just feel like the conversation is so convoluted and so off. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that you probably get some of the most hate-filled mail preaching that it, yeah, you know pre- do, pre- preaching your model and it's like that's not constructive like <laughs> you know you know i don't agree on the the disease model but 95 percent of everything we've talked about i've agreed with you on so yeah. so it's like there's a lot of good stuff you know and it's like if you're gonna get hung up on that you're, you're no better than this false ideology that that we've masmer uh, produced to to create the epidemic, really, if you want to you call the, yeah. the drug epidemic an epidemic. Final thoughts on what do you think it would better approach would look like? What do you think better treatment would look like? What do you think better education would look like? I would like to see us um, legalize drugs, not just decriminalize drugs, but legalize them. Right? Because you would not see the death that we're seeing right now which are coming in large part from the fentanyl. Like right. It is, people don't know what they're buying, right? So, And when you get more desperate and you do drugs in different situations, it actually changes the toxicity of them. But that's a crazy line of research to get into. <laughs> but, um, but the situation that we're putting people in with drug prohibition is probably... It, it, it is adding to the death in a way. But so I would like to see legalization of all drugs for adults to buy and a lowering of the drinking age. I think that would be wonderful for us to see. That would change the culture a lot. And, um, and, but at the same time, we would have to stop the overhyping of the drugs and, and let go of the addiction concept and, um, and this disease concept and just say like, look, you know, this is one more cheap thrill in life. You know, view it as such and use it appropriately. Don't make it more meaningful than that. And um, when people feel carried away with it and they feel like they can't stop, um, the method of help, the way I'd like to see to help them is to have it focused like the freedom model is, um, okay, what would make you happier? How can we enlighten you about your options? Let's explore it. I would like to see things go along that line instead of like, what we do now is we pretend that they're lacking something and we're filling it in with the treatment. And we're creating an obstacle. Want to be, we're, we're creating, yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um, so, I'd say we're creating obstacles. We need to stop creating that. I'd say, like, look, tell people right from the get-go, you are fully capable of changing this. I know you can. And I know you don't feel like you can right now. And 
that's okay. That's okay. You're not horrible because you feel that way. It's a pretty normal life experience in so many realms. Right. Um, but you can change at any moment, and we can probably help you by giving you some some information. You know, and and I definitely would make it about drug effects and what you can and cannot get out of drugs because part of what gives us an overblown desire for drugs is our overblown view of drugs, our exaggerated view of yeah. the powers. You know, we think that we're going to take away all of our negative feelings and um, soothe us and help us escape and they provide the greatest pleasure that's better than anything else. You know, and it, that thing that the pleasure is, is provided by drugs is better than anything else is like disproven by really dumb studies where they find it like Oreo cookies, you know, will make, uh, will light up the pleasure center to bring <laughs> more than cocaine. Or, you know, right. right? We got to just give people the real information. I'm going way too long. So I'll shut up there. We just got to <laughs> give people accurate information. Yeah, I, I agree that, that misinformation is where a lot of the problems stem from. Steven, yeah, yeah we, we have been going long. This has been awesome. I could talk to you for hours because you have such a fascinating perspective and, and you have such a, an interesting and unique uh, viewpoint on a lot of these issues. One last thing, is there anything that you're doing right now that you want to mention as far as a plug to anyone listening out there? Is there anything I want to plug? Um, <laughs> well, people can look at my blog, thecleanslate.org, right? Um, and definitely they should pick up uh, our book, The Freedom Model for Addiction, and give that a read. We it on Amazon, but sometimes, you know, actually most of the time, even if somebody calls and they're really interested and they don't have money, my boss ends up sending him a book. Anyway, <laughs> that is awesome. So you, you can get a book for free if you want, right? And um, it's packed with information. And, um, you know, so do that. Visit my website, cleanslate.org, or read uh, my book, The Freedom Model for Addiction. Um, I'm in the midst of working on a special educational program for people with opioid use problems. And it is going to sort of explain um, how to let go of opioids. It's, for, it's, it's meant for the crowd who is on Suboxone or methadone. It feels uh-huh. like that is not bringing them far enough, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's helping to some degree to keep on fooling around, and they don't know why, and they feel bad about it, and they want to get over the finish line. Um, what? You know, basically what I'm trying to help them understand and to address. Mm-hmm. It helps you get over that obsession, I think is what you're saying. And Yeah, like, helping to get over the obsession. For me, at least, that was the hardest thing, the obsession to use. Excellent. Yeah, Steve, um, I'll follow up with you. I, I'd love to do, when you get further along on that project, have you come back on and, and talk about that. Thank you so much, so much for joining me on All this. Right. And... Yeah, this has been an awesome, awesome episode.